for love and design the podcast welcome to for love and design the podcast that explores the world of design innovation art and creativity i'm ross lovegrove and together with ila colombo for this episode we sat down with charlotte fiel prolific author and leading critic of design with a portfolio of over 60 published books and an art gallery in 1980s London. We'd be talking about what are the different aspects of design thinking and how this practice is currently changing due to the advent of artificial intelligence. But before we begin, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date. Now, let's get started. Hi, Ross. Hi, Charlotte. Nice to be with you today. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. I'm really pleased to be here with Charlotte Fiel, longtime friend and somebody I really respect. Yes. So today we're going to talk a lot about design thinking, which I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. Or rethinking, maybe. Amazing. (laughs) And I'm going to go straight in to you, Charlotte. Mm -hmm. The book you gave me recently, it's really mind-blowing and I'm really enjoying going through it. A hundred ideas that change design. You mentioned an often superficial application of design thinking as a one-size-fits-all solution. Mm-hmm. Can you open up a bit on what is good design thinking and also provide some examples where a superficial approach of it might be detrimental? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are two types of design thinking. There's the good design thinking and there's really bad design <laughs> thinking. And it's all what they're based on. It's what the ideas underlying them are. But also, when you're coming in in terms of design thinking, you also have real design thinking, which real designers do. And then you have this design thinking that is taught, often very superficially, on courses that, in a way, it's great because it's trying to get people who are supposedly non-creative to think creatively, and that's all well and good. But real design thinking is a very specific thing, and it's underpinned by core design ideas. And that's what's lacking in the sort of superficial application of design thinking at the moment, more or less. I mean, obviously, there are some exceptions and there are some courses that are great, but there are other ones which are really worrying. Let's put it that way. Do you have one precise example in your head? I'm not going to name names at all. (laughs) But when I started digging deep into design thinking and how it was being taught, you get three-day boot camps that will teach you how to think like a design thinking. Well, yeah, maybe they will be, but I don't think you're going to have what real design thinking is because actually good design is all about context and context is all about ideas. And basically every design starts out as an idea and is also an expression of an idea. And so the reason behind the book we did was all about what are those ideas that lie behind design thinking? And Ross absolutely will get this. You know, this is what his bread and butter has been for, you know, God knows how many decades. But he's been at the coalface day in, day out. He understands about sustainability. He understands about all sorts of things that are so key, whether it's portability, modularity, you name it. I mean, there's literally a 100 core ideas which 
have had a huge impact on the evolution of design. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I mean, that's really what it's all about. It's about ideas and how they're expressed and whether they're good ideas or bad ideas. Very good. Well, Ross, shifting now to you, one of your core ideas is innovation. And there's a sentiment of urgency and perhaps recklessness in the pursuit of innovative design solutions. You feel it sometimes, and we discuss this. You're a visionary designer. Do you think that fast-paced demand for innovation could lead to a potential loss of understanding about the true essence of design thinking? For me, it can go either way, you know, just in a, in a, from a, a balanced viewpoint. I do respect and kind of thrive on the new. I'm interested in the new, but not the new at any expense in the sense that, you know, Charlotte was just talking about design education and how one grasps the essence of of why something should or could be the way it is. Now, you rest back on your own thoughts and your own feelings about that, but you can only be innovative, innovative, (laughs) gosh, I thought I could say that, if you're armed with a greater level of awareness, you know, because you're pulling in factors from sources that might not be so evident. And of course, when you're young, you don't have those sources. Now you Google those sources and you still don't understand those sources because they're instantaneous. You know, if one stumbled upon the work of, um, you know, one of the early greats in design like Castiglione or, or whatever, when you were young, that might have been the information you required through a kind of respect for somebody you think, oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking. I like his process. I like the result. And that might have just pulled you into that route. That never really happened to me, partly because I want to be myself. I don't want to be derivative. I want to be uniquely me in the sense I want to bring something new to the table. And you can't fundamentally copy anything that you don't understand. Now, in the 40 years since I've been practicing, the technology rush that we have experienced and are now currently experiencing at such an incredible pace, that will inform innovation. I mean, it absolutely will. I Mm. mean, you're wearing a pair of headphones which are quite bulky. I just designed a pair which are quite bulky. But if you came up with an incredible flat series of components, then they don't need to look the way they look. So if you're not up to date in soul searching for that kind of technology and the way maybe you can reapply that, mm-hmm. uh, of course, you're just going to produce repetitive, fairly banal objects. Presumably also it's the ethical argument that also has been changing hugely, mm. you know, rather than maybe designing human-centrically, now designing eco-centrically. Yes. It's a, a huge theme in design. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to take on those ideas too, as well as the technology and Well, that, that's not even, I don't think that's even in question, Charlotte. Mm. I think that should be embedded, mm. you know, and uh, more and more, I, I would like to be involved in education, but I'd like to be involved in education for younger children from the ground up so that they they help us build an incredible awareness of where we are. I mean, cosmically, materially, earth sciences, how we deal with energy, all these other things. So it's not a question of cool or styling or any of that. That's rather uh, nauseous. It, there's a whole new basis now on for reasons why you can design and how you innovate. Just Mm -hmm. briefly, I reworked my whole lecture 
in the last year. So I just did away with what was there before. And now I only deliver core principles of why I design. Mm -hmm. And you can put those together in whichever way you want and you will get exponential growth within that idea. But these are core principles, which I believe can really create an immense biodiversity. Mm -hmm. They're not restrictive. Well, going back to innovation and ideas, does time play a part into the initiation of an idea? Like we're, we're moving in a world that is going to be faster and more competitive. How can yeah. you have good ideas with this kind of very I, fast I speed? think it's actually mind-blowing. I mean, when you look at the Sycamore, Google Sycamore quantum computer, and it can spew out in a few seconds what the next fastest supercomputer, the Frontier, can spew out in 47 years. We've got just this unbelievable tsunami of digital computation coming our way very, very quickly. It's almost like a tidal wave. And how we deal with that is mind-blowing. I, I don't know what the solution is. All I know is it's going to get very fast-paced in terms of how things are made, evolved, and everything else. And Yes, it's also an incredible tool. AI is an incredible tool, but it is a tool. It isn't self-determining. It's what we do with that tool that's mm -hmm. really, really important. And just because something can be made doesn't necessarily mean it should be made. Just because something can be designed, it doesn't necessarily mean it should exactly. be designed. And that, I think, is a huge ethical question that we're really at the frontier of And we probably need to step back and just actually think, what are we doing with all this technology? Yes, it's extraordinary. When new technologies come along, it's very easy to think they're going to be these absolute game changer, whether it's virtual reality, augmented reality or whatever. And often they are a little bit less than what yeah. they might seem. So yes, we have AI, we have quantum computing, which maybe they won't consume all our lives, mm. but they will certainly consume a huge amount when it comes to the creation of products and services and all that sort of thing. Yeah, because design thinking has design and thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And we need the thinking part to uh -huh. create an idea. Yeah. And the thinking part is contextualized by a lot of things that happen around you. Exactly. How do you think when you can't even contextualize? Meaning, When everything is moving fast, mm -hmm. you're less aware. So you talk about awareness, Ross. Mm -hmm. How do you stay aware? Like right now, are you mm -hmm. struggling with awareness within design thinking? No, but I, I, again, listening to Charlotte, I'm thinking maybe if everything went to a standstill right now, there were no new things, no new smartphones, no new... There's enough inertia in that technology to keep mankind at a pretty good level, I think, you know, before we go that next step. So I'm not suggesting anyway an open letter about stopping the production of things, but what we're talking about now, the awareness is, is everything. And it, I believe it's, it's truly everything, and that's related to instinct, it's related to consciousness, and it's something which I've been talking about and advocating for a long time. When you sit still and you think, your brain, which, remember this, if your brain was actually a computer at that scale, it would be so limited. The brain, the human brain, is incredible at forming neural connectivity between all things considered. And this is a biological entity, and it really fascinates me. It really fascinates me how one can absolutely expand and augment 
the limitation of that brain. So, you know, I, what I like about design or creativity is because it's got so many dimensions. It's it's a mille foie. It's massive. Uh, so when you arrive at X, whatever that thing is, that's a result of all things considered mm -hmm. fed through your own kind of consciousness of why something should exist or could exist. So I'm not saying that's better or worse than anything else, but we need underlying conditions in that that are ticked off, they, you tick the box. Mm. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about intelligent design, which is something which is seen as a rather religious idea that somebody intelligent would uh, say yay or nay to the creation of something. I mean, we're talking about historically versus evolution. Well, the trouble is if you get into evolution in a Darwinian sense, which is something that I followed in design because I feel that there is a, a natural sort of leapfrog kind of transfer of ideas and aesthetics bang, that's gone because it's instantaneous. Mm -hmm. I mean, evolution was always related to adaptation. Well, it's not about adaptation anymore. It's a massive change in our civilization mm -hmm. and, and everything. So that, that excites me and fascinates me. Mm -hmm. But it also tells me that there's more need for intelligent design. So there's a guidance system, mm -hmm. not saying that we're God or anything like that, but there needs to be a controlling guidance system now more than ever where those two factors which seem diametrically opposed, actually converge through mm -hmm. AI as the next step. So everything will be leveled and it will come back, like the Burgess Shale, uh, historically, you know, the idea that you level uh, species on the planet and they come back with incredible beauty and complexity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I would argue that maybe because we have too many ideas and a lot from the past, mm -hmm. too many voices, maybe we're lacking true ideas. Right now, if I go back to products that are designed and produced these days, mm -hmm. I feel like they're mostly a commercial and marketing exercise. They're recycling of something that mm -hmm. came before. And Ross and I talked about this in our first episode too. Mm -hmm. We were questioning whether the industry needs a total unanimous refocus towards more meaning and relevance. You also just mentioned this, given the circumstances that we're facing today, like climate change and economic instability. Mm -hmm. How do we move forward from mere industrial styling, for example? Is this something we should start to feel guilty of? Or should creativity still retain the freedom and luxury of expression to the cost of our planet? What's your view on this? Because I think young talents are still lacking true guidance. They feel a bit confused. Yeah. I mean, I think... For sure, there are an awful lot of products out there that shouldn't be out there. And I think that often the taught type of design thinking is all about how to make something that will sell really well and, you know, bugger the consequences mm -hmm. of the <laughs> environment. So I think that in a way we have this very consumerist mindset generally. And I have a real problem with things like gifting culture, where things are just being produced for their novelty sake. Mm -hmm. But also you mentioned that industrial stylist term. Mm -hmm. And actually industrial styling was used up to the 50s to describe designers. They were called industrial stylists. Very they weren't called mm. industrial designers. Mm. So the first... This is mainly an American model. Yes, the first generation of industrial design consultants, which happened during what was known as the design decade, the 1930s, the Depression 
laden era. And what did companies need? They needed someone to basically take their product lines and give it a bit of pizzazz so that they could sell their markets in a very difficult falling Was this people market. like Teague and Raymond Louis? And uh, yeah, Walter Doran Teague. There were a whole load of them. Laurel Guild, Lowy being the absolute god of industrial styling. But actually, they often get quite a rap because actually they often did implement really good changes with their tweaks on mm -hmm. product lines. But it was all about eye appeal. It was really marketing driven. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how the origins of design thinking very first happened because there was this incredible professor of mechanical engineering and business administration at Stanford called John E. Arnold. And he looked at what was going on in the industrial styling and he wanted something different. And he was teaching engineers, but he wanted to teach them how to think like real designers mm -hmm. rather than marketing driven. And so he wrote this landmark book called Creative Engineering in 1959. And in that book, he laid out a systematic need-finding methodology based on a very holistic understanding of people's needs. Mm -hmm. And the four benefits that he said came from this basically design thinking methodology was novel functionality, higher performance, lower production costs, and increased saleability. Fantastic. Yeah. We all resonate with yeah, that. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where is the want in there? Because there was that, yeah. you know, that divergence between need and want, yeah. which actually seemed to have come back with a yeah. vengeance. The irony is now what is design thinking basically being used for or the, the taught design thinking being used for? marketing-driven ends. So exactly opposite of what poor John Arnold mm. set out to achieve. So it's almost been turned on its head. And in terms of young designers, I think actually young people are far more savvy when it comes to environmental and ethical issues. I actually think the Generation Z is a phenomenal generation coming up. I, uh, they, they really have very strong principles and they're prepared to stand up for them. So I think a lot of people from that generation know the ethical issues. Mm. We just need to let them run with them. Fantastic. I love this because it's a little bit of the struggle that sometimes Ross and I, we have. Like, I'm very categoric. Like, oh, no, it's like black or white. We mm -hmm. can't afford anymore to just say, oh, yeah, but I need beauty. Oh, yeah, but I need this. Mm -hmm. No, we don't need it. You mm -hmm. know, it's very interesting what you just said that historically we did need industrial styling to get where we are now. Mm -hmm. But now that we have more wisdom and we went through all the phases, we can afford to actually be really focused. A hundred percent. Yeah, but that style, that style, I never really liked the terminology, even though people might think I'm in that game. I'm not. The language of design should be born out of whatever that input should be. You know, if you go back and you look at a train by Raymond Lowy, you know, a steam train, you know, he was pretty brilliant at making that thing look like it was moving, even mm -hmm. though it wasn't. So he did the job. You know, this was a sort of abstract expressionism, if you like. It was a, became, it gave design a kind of art form status mm -hmm. that when it continued on, it, it still retained something above and beyond its function. You can say mm -hmm. the same about Rams, absolutely. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of air in his products. Mm -hmm. Well, Ross, in your design, examples like the iconic go chair or the tin and water bottle, you carry a distinct signature for process-led design, 
and organic essentialism, for example, among other principles. How do you see this philosophy of process-led design uh, adapting in an increasingly digital and intangible world? Those are two products which are a good selection in a way, partly because the water bottle for T-Nant, to my knowledge, the first truly commercial digitally generated product. And it's very evident in itself, in, in its language, although the process to get there was slightly analog and then it became very digital, using very early digital means to scan it and, and you know, capture information and then take it on. But you're dealing with an incredibly abstract thing. <laughs> you're dealing with the projection of, of, of the concept of water itself, optically, physically. I mean, it's really difficult. So the result there I'm very proud of, even though I always say, you know, we should not be selling water. It shouldn't be a commodity. It's a ridiculous idea. So there's always something that, that you know, it goes against the grain of, of your true soulful feelings. With the go-chair, what's interesting about the go-chair is it got arrested in time. But what's wonderful about that, irrespective of me, is it retains energy. And I, I like objects which feel like they are alive, uh, that they have a presence, you know. And then so you decide what doesn't have a presence, that's fine. A tadando piece of architecture is static. And because it's so static, it works so well with art because then that art becomes alive. These are subliminal things which, you know, I'd be happy to talk to young people about in terms of embedding that in the work that they do. Mm, but look at the process, you yeah. know, the process of getting there and, of getting there and, and promoting well, they're both an incredibly idea. abstract How, what is the process in the digital era what could be the process oh it's absolutely the same meaning mm. that something like the go chair i deliberately was trying to grow a leg out of the bottom of the seat or an arm from once i i absolutely s screwed with it mm -hmm. because i wanted to break down the knowledge of chairs or whatever that we know and out of that, by the time you butter pat that and you bring it back into some sensibility, you get what you get. But the early drawings, which, by the way, were acquired by the Pompidou, are radical. They don't even look like that thing. So you're saying that maybe the digital is yeah. going to be more irrational, oh, irrational yeah. because yeah. it's four-dimensional, it's non-dimensional, it's metaphysical. But I understand why. And I think you need to have some entity that is irrational in order to blow the thing apart so that when it reconstructs itself... It's new, it's different, it's vital, it has a new energy. It's not this sort of lumpen, low progress. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say something, though, that really is uniting everything that we're saying. And that is that yeah, there is a tension, there's a natural sort of tension in design between people who do a cushion or a little cork stool or a glass little lamp and true industrial designers that have to have an immense knowledge in order to even think about the idea of let alone guide engineers and do things mm -hmm. and there's a tension in there because they both come under the envelope of design and they're not they are absolutely not and it's it suggests that people like me don't care about those other things because they're not significant which to some extent is true i mean i'm not that interested but equally that's why i think those people are not they can't comprehend what people do at a higher industrial, scientific, technological level. They just decide to give up on trying to understand that. Yet 
it all coexists. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure, mm-hmm. Charlotte, you might disagree with some things that were said there because you think design is a design very is a broad. huge, broad thing. I mean, it can. Be, I think we're all designers, actually. You know, we it's it's in our very core DNA to design. It's a very human thing. Yes, there are certain species that also do designy things, but basically that's what sets us apart as humans. But yes, absolutely. The difference between an industrial designer and a craft-based designer is huge. It's a huge, huge gulf. But you know what? One of the things it is based on, which there is a shared parallel, is optimism. Mm -hmm. The belief that they can make something better. And that's actually a core idea is that's what makes designers get up in the morning is that they actually are pretty optimistic people. Yes, I agree. Ross, yeah, but, you are optimistic. Yeah, but <laughs> I think on top of that, I mean, and I'm qualifying what you're saying, Charlotte, yeah. very much, is that in order to do the more complex work, you need teams of people. You mm-hmm. need massive level of interaction. And remember, that's that's working at speed. That's there's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of need and a lot of knowledge. We're on a number of programs right now that are in, that go from NASA right away through to 3D printing. So. That idea, but you know, there are days when I wake up and behind you here, the wooden bioforms that I made Mm. myself, I Mm. carved myself, Mm. and I miss that. I miss Mm. the fact that I can have my own level of Mm. singular capability Mm. and not judge one thing as being Mm. better or worse Mm. than another. So I completely understand that there is an immense need Mm. for craft to inform industry. Uh And actually, what I would also say with industrial design. Industrial design has grown so much. I mean, you you think of the pioneers and they could get a buy with their own little offices. Maybe they had 10 people working for them or something. But now you have the big creative, they're not called industrial design agencies anymore. They're called creative agencies, the likes of IDEO or, or Fuse Project or Smart Design. And they have teams of people working on projects, which, you know, they're inter, multidisciplinary teams. They'll have interactive designers, they'll have material specialists. I mean, this is a huge, almost juggernaut of creativity that they're putting behind to Mm. crack problems. I mean, I have a huge amount of time for smart design. I think Davin is just a genius. And and actually, one of the best conversations I've ever had about design was with Dan Formosa, Mm -hmm. who worked with on the Good Grips project for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is like a design thinking juggernaut because they've got all these disciplines coming in and working towards the one goal of of finding a solution. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah, very much so. I do believe that you need multiple minds at at the same time conversing, reasoning, Mm -hmm. sharing thoughts Mm -hmm. to create new ideas. It Mm -hmm. can't be a solo show. Mm -hmm. So I I love what you just said, for example. You, You know, if we think backwards to all the way back to Greece, for example, Mm -hmm. and the philosophers and Plato Mm -hmm. and Socrates, they would have this uh, symposium, you know. Dialogues. Exactly. We're missing the dialogues. And those kind of practices, they put together, as you said, material scientists with, Mm -hmm. I don't know, user experience Mm -hmm. designers and all sorts, Mm -hmm. because you need multiple 
points of views mm-hmm. to get to the core of an idea. Yeah, you know? especially if it's big, especially if it's something like designing a nudge system to get people to you know have a diabetic app or something, mm-hmm. exactly. or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I think you really do need to pull in all that expertise. Yes. Well, over the last twelve months, Ross and I have been working consistently with artificial intelligence tools, which feels a little bit like having an extended arm in terms of creativity. <laughs> and there's a democratizing aspect of AI that I really find intriguing. With the right tools, virtually anyone can become a designer or even a small practice of design Mm -hmm. because you have access to all these different Mm -hmm. capabilities without formal training. I feel it's quite empowering, but I also wonder, of course, about its implications. Charlotte, do you think that this widespread access might lead to a dilution of design ideas and a bad dilution? Yeah, I think everyone will think they're an amazing designer. Um, I think you had that with graphic design when we, you know, first got like graphic design tools, you know, you had like Mm. your professional graphic designers and then you thought everyone else thought they were a graphic designer too, or it's happened with photography. You have the professional photographers now, everyone thinks they're really hot, hot photographers Mm -hmm. because of the tools. So yes, I mean, I think definitely AI driven design programs will have a huge impact on creativity. Will the end results be any good? That's questionable. I mm-hmm. think there will be an awful lot of playing, yeah. um, but not necessarily purpose yeah. in the solutions that are spewed out. And I also worry about actually how much energy is used on the computational side of all this, because anything that's requiring that much memory and everything else does have an energy mm-hmm. um, problem. problem. Yeah. And yeah. that's the big dirty secret of the digital age. We mm-hmm. don't admit or don't have revealed how much energy is taken to compute and render the elephant all this in the stuff. Room. It mm-hmm. is the huge elephant, elephant in the room. room. Yes. Well, I like what you just oh. said, that you need purpose, right? And majority of the, of the works I see online, as you said, lacks purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, Ross, how do you compromise and or how do you find purpose in a commercial inquiry to then lead to an idea? Well, first of all, coming back to what Charlotte was talking about, about energy consumption, which is not talked about, it is an issue. But that I think that will be solved. But within that, there it's just a question of where you shift the energy. You know, it's like between an electric vehicle or a fossil fuel driven vehicle that, you know, there is a shift and we're going that way anyway. So we're going to going to deal with that. But there is a dematerialization that comes from that idea, meaning people are satiated by the result. Mm -hmm. Meaning if it's an image, it's satiated. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. enough than Mm -hmm. having a physical product made. Mm -hmm. So coming back to this idea of purpose, when I sit down to work something out, I do set up a series of parameters, which I don't even talk to other people about. And, you know, so for example, if you look at 3D printing, what can 3D printing give you? And by the way, it is an issue with power because Mm. it uses quite a lot Mm -hmm. of power. So what it means is that you, I'm not going to say what it is that I'm working on right now, but it's very interesting. And it, it means that, you know, my condition are minimalism, right? Because the minimum amount of structural material in that object means the minimum amount of time and the minimum amount of energy and the minimum amount of material to create something that if it was made, that object was made in another way, you couldn't have that. So it's a trade-off, you know, one is a material mass by 
contemporary uh, methodology, but then you go through into 3D printing. I'm using that new status, that new tool to redefine that potential. Because the thing is that if a client comes to me and they don't really know what they want, they're coming to me because effectively, because of my age and my experience, I align with them. And what we do is we identify what it should be that we should do together that gets the best out of what I'm capable of and what they're capable of. So I like that. I like that idea that they come to me with an open mindset. And then through a, a series of sort of logical principles, I I talk to them about why we should do anything. And remember, there are certain things you do which are there to sort of disrupt. So you initially you disrupt. This is like an art thing, you know. This is Damien Hirst's shark in the tank. You know, you disrupt in order to draw attention and then you follow up in a commercial way with things which really deliver. This particular project that I'm on at the moment, it's got such a, a beautiful set of purposes <laughs> that I'm really loving it and I'm enjoying it. But what, obviously on top of that, I'm looking for something which is, in my estimation, and it's very arguable, is what's beautiful. Something that has great proportion, something that has an art and sculptural value within the parameters that I have set up, mm -hmm. which can qualify the logical mind and the artistic mind. And I've always looked for that. I've looked for people I can talk about with law <laughs> and people I can talk about with uh, just pure abstract imagination. Well, you have a kind of like self-initiating natural mm. process of I giving do. yourself yeah. purpose within your designs, yeah. which is... Even um, if it takes me longer, much longer. Which yeah. is a great talent, of course, and not everyone can self-initiate purpose. Now, Charlotte, you mentioned a few times ethics and, um, you know, all of the ethical bubble mm -hmm. around new technologies, uh, which is also a topic close to my heart. With AI integration, of course, we have some kind of issues yeah. and it's a totally new uncharted ground. Mm -hmm. Every design decision influenced by AI brings with it a host of ethical considerations and many in the creative world are currently not very happy with AI, you know, especially established names and bigger practices and uh, very protective and defensive designers. They're hating a little bit what's happening. What's your take on this? Like, do you think that design, even when augmented and automated partially mm -hmm. by AI, has the rights to call itself ethically sound? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's, it's the parameters that you're feeding into it. I mean, if you're saying we want this product to be more ergonomic and use less material by 40%, yeah, go for it. But if it's like, we want to design a gift for Christmas 2025 that's going to be the perfect stocking stuffer, then no, it's not. So I think it's all about what you feed in. This is just a tool and it's what we put into that tool or, or the parameters we put in that are key. And in terms of ethics, yes, I think we need to be more ethical. The world does not need more stuff, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, if we stop making stuff now, we've still got plenty to get on with. So I think it's very much that when things are made and designed, designed and made, they actually have to be worthy of being designed and made. And, you know, that's why with, say, Ross's work, he is so thoughtful and 
So evaluating what the real meaning behind those products should be. Ross creates things of absolute rare beauty, but they're very purposeful too. And that purpose, that purposefulness is the key to the beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, Because actually function is one of the greatest drivers of beauty. It's in the natural world, but it's also when you have gifted designers who really understand all about purpose, then you have the most beautiful designs. And yeah, I mean, I think also parameters are really good for designers. So I was really pleased on the the new project you're working on and you're saying I've got this purpose and this purpose. Those are constraints and constraints are some of the best things that designers can have because it makes you work harder. It's so easy to just go off and do something free form or however lovely, but and it's, you know, there are the individual creative things, which is wonderful. You're pushing the boundaries and of aesthetics, and that's great. But actually, what gets that grey matter working is when you have constraints. I love it. I love it. And I think that constraints are the biggest enemy of capitalism and growth. Mm-hmm. And if I apply that to the digital tools and even artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. softwares, the designers of those models and the companies investing in those models, mm-hmm. they might be lacking constraints. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's all the whole fear about AI. Yeah, yeah. Let's put constraints also in design mm-hmm. thinking about tools that are digitalized. Well, that's equally exciting. You know, I'm just thinking about the field of consumer electronics, where by definition, you've got inbuilt obsolescence. It's on this incredible fast-paced level of replacement therapy mm. and innovation, which mm. on the one hand is terribly frustrating because it's just, it's, it's you're making these things obsolete and defunct. I'd say that was the worst bad design idea ever was built in obsolescence. Well, you can't help it though, Charlotte, yeah. because it's it's dealing with technology and technology mm. is moving. Mm. So if a chip uh, becomes more efficient, you, you, you upgrade. But it's closed systems that are just the absolute you know, they're awful. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, the fact that you can have, say, a phone and you can't update it mm-hmm. after two years or three years is absolutely repugnant to my mm-hmm. to my mind. And I think there need I mean, I know there's been EU legislation about the right to repair, which hopefully will address it, but it does it's not really working in practice. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, absolutely, it's... um... Well, it's just different areas of engagement. And I've worked at all these levels. You know, I've worked with those kind of corporations, global corporations that are in a competitive state, always. And I gave a talk recently with the head of... I suppose it's more imaging uh, and innovation at LG. What an interesting man. Wow, incredible. And what they're trying to do with dematerialization of objects. I mean, that is something embedded in their way of thinking. And that's a very much an Asian uh, way of thinking, which is great. So that that's the higher end, if you like. But as you were speaking, I was thinking about permanence versus impermanence. And of course, you know, you don't want to live this sort of static life where you are not moving with the times. I mean, even if we could, people don't wear the same clothes all their life. They just don't, you know. So there is this need for refreshing, rebooting, re, re, re. And that's why some of the things that we're looking at these days now with the inclusion of AI and being able to talk a different way to the creative model, I'm hoping, I mean, uh, that's Mm -hmm. to pull everything together now. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that the rationale, I keep saying this, the rationale of, of artificial intelligence will leapfrog 
the deceit of human intelligence. So that we, we just leapfrog that mm -hmm. with something that's unemotional and then we deal with how we deal with the mm -hmm. emotional. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. As I reflect on our discussion today, I realized that the very essence of design is undergoing a big transformation. With AI playing such a pivotal role, our understanding of design, its boundaries, its possibilities may all be on set to change forever. A few things mentioned also clarifies what are the enemies of good design thinking, potentially, mm -hmm. you know, capitalism, growth, fast fashion mm -hmm. or fast anything, mm -hmm. gift culture, as mm -hmm. you, Charlotte said. We have a few interesting questions that came through the audience. One that is relevant to mm -hmm. exactly this point. How can one not be part of competition, still be in the creative field and promote a healthy environment among designers? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with what you're designing for. Are you designing for yourself? That's all well and good. If you're doing it on a small scale, low impact, great. You can make beautiful things um, on a very small scale. If you're doing it on an industrial scale, then you have far more um, responsibility. So I, I'd say it's, it's basically what arena are you taking on board? And also, I think because obviously increasingly design is going to be so much more intertwined with AI systems, yes, it is going to change a lot, the landscape of designers. I mean, actually, you know, we're going to see a huge shift in professions throughout life, basically, whether it's programmers or accountants or doctors, every field or most fields, unless they have a sort of social interaction, are going to be affected. And design is just going to be one of them. But it means that actually, you as designers, you need to be more on your game of what actually it's all about and those parameters. Fantastic. Ross, this is directed to you. Do you ever approach new clients after you had your own idea first? Never. I never have. I mean, I one of the things is sort of naively pride myself with is that I've had a, th a pretty successful career and what I show is where I go. I've always advocated that what you show is where you go because you you need to attract through a particular force those kind of people that align with you and we live in an age of acute communication. So theoretically that idea of what you show it should have an, be an attractive force. But equally, I do know that you have many ideas of your own mm -hmm. that you would like to see realized. Oh, and yeah. sometimes you like the client for it because they're actually transformative ideas, much more intelligence idea that they might fight with the commercial side of. I didn't finish my sentence. That was the old one. That was the old me. When the old model, studio model and so on, it seemed to have its own inertia. Now I think it's very different. I think you've got to seek people out. You've got to collaborate. You have to align yourself with like-minded people. If you've got an idea, you've got to get out there and talk to the right people more and more. You've got to raise funds. You've got to... It's another form of engagement. It's not a passive engagement. It's absolutely be at the forefront. Often what I say, uh, which I, I'll go to my grave saying, is that you know it's only a question of will and funding. If you can get the will and you can get the funding, there's no risk in this. With somebody up at a particular level with a knowledge base and, and a certain purpose, that where the purpose aligns with the purpose of life on earth. You know, I'm talking about 
advancing civilizations, how we deal with these things, how we reverse out certain things in order to be able to give ourselves a freedom of the future. These are big things. They're more philosophical ideas. So it's it's all right in a pedestrian way, just plonking through, going through your, your, your design projects. But now my inertia, the things that really touch me deeply are... They're more scientific things in a way that have bigger implication. It's a waste of my life. It's better that I do nothing than than to plod along being thought of as somebody that does X when I'm sitting here knowing that I don't do X, that they don't know me. So getting the messaging out, which is what we're doing through Instagram and other, other portals, the way we are aligning and collaborating with like minds around the globe, by the way, and relocating to a place which will actually, on the ground every day, is innovation about how we deal with big subjects. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's... You know, that's I where mean, you got to be. And what I'm hearing from all this is that you have the fundamental belief that design is a powerful tool for mm-hmm. social change. Absolutely. And that is key. I mean, I think that's the the one bedrock idea that is the driver of good design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not going to make any, you're not going to create any other future if you don't harness a young mind. You know, we have a young daughter and every day I see her kind of cerebral intellectual interest grow. And I want to be part of that, you know. I mean, why do all those leaves grow that particular way? Why is that that color? What's the pigmentation? How do those bees pollinate? You know, there's all these things which you can't just sleep that off or read a book. It's You've got to be engaged. And I think you've got to go into the context where your philosophy aligns with like-minded people. Well, Charlotte, you're a deeply experienced critic, author, historian mm-hmm. uh, of design and uh, it's been great talking with you about design thinking. The last question I'm going to direct it to you because of your knowledge. This person is asking, how do you approach a new problem of design without losing your identity within it? Mm-hmm. And do you prioritize identity over the problem solving? Oh, it depends on the it depends on the problem needing to be solved, I think. You know, some problems really need a very analytical scientific approach whereas other ones can be a bit more creative. But it's actually amazing how much personality and identity designers do bring to the the platform. You know, with say with Ross, you can immediately you know, that's a Ross design or, you know, there are other designers who are immediately identifiable. And it's basically purely because of the ideas that drive them. And that's why the ideas are so fundamental. So ideas are unique to humans. A hundred percent. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure being with you today, guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of For Love and Design. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. If you want to keep exploring the world of design, innovation, art, and creativity, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes too. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest news and announcements. Until next time.